The Friday Reporter launched in March of 2021 as a conversation with today's journalists and has expanded to include newsmakers, lawmakers, image makers, and just about anybody who's in the news or the news adjacent business. The podcast is in partnership with PR Daily and is part of the Big Wig Podcast Network. If you like the show, please hit the subscribe button to make sure you've got ready access to the latest conversation. And if you've got an idea for a great guest, don't forget to send your ideas to Lisa at FridayReporter.com. Well, hello, and thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Today's guest has been a friend of mine in a couple of different uh, locations, and I find myself today talking to my friend Yolanda Brignoni, who is the Vice President of External Affairs and Communications for the Elizabeth Blazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation. And I cannot wait to get into this. I'm just, I'm super excited about the work that you're doing there, Yolanda. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. I want to talk a little bit about what you did before you came to this amazing role that you're in today. Will you tell me and and our our listeners today a little bit about how you got started in this business? Um, so how I got started, I was actually a reporter. So that was what I went to school for. That was what I thought I was going to do. Journalism, political science major. I thought I was going to be a foreign correspondent going overseas, you know, just covering everything. And I was a reporter, a newspaper reporter. I know that's a dying breed now, especially now, Um, for a few years um, in the area of health, which has always been a passion for me. And I realized that I wanted to be more involved. Um, I, I got into health because I really am very passionate about giving people a voice, particularly people who are not accustomed to having a voice, giving them access to information, being a conduit for them to be able to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I remember that I would get these and my newspaper was my hometown paper. So even more so, I was like really, really passionate about. And where was that? The people of the community. Macon, Georgia. Okay. Um, So very passionate about the community, very passionate about I mean, this is the community that raised me and shaped me. And there were times I really wanted to just be more for them of like, you know, <laughs> if you really package the story this way, it would be a better way for, you know, to get the information out. Or, you know, if you had asked me this or if you provided this to me, it would have been a better story. And that is not newspapers. That's not journalism. That's PR. Yeah. yeah. And it was a hard decision because that's what I had gone to school for. I mean, I was on my high school newspaper, like all of it. This was going to be my thing. Right. And then I got into it and I'm just like, "Eh, I don't know. And um, making that change was a big one for me. And I came to D.C. and. 23 years later, I'm still here and I'm in PR and communications and I love it. And it has been really amazing. And I've worked with some amazing brands and companies to be a part of helping shape people's lives. But I think that journalism school really prepares you for for that to some degree. Oh, absolutely. But when you have when your heart is really fully in that issue area and then you realize that there's more you can do. 
That's, Absolutely. I mean, that, and that's a hard bridge to cross. I, I know so many, and you made the, you made the reference, but this has been a particularly difficult time for so many of our journalism friends. We're seeing layoffs. We're seeing shuttering of publications. Like this is not great news for the country. It's not great news for people that want to know how and what it is they need to be doing in order to be helping mm-hmm. their communities. So, but you made that bridge from journalism into advocacy work Talk to me a little mm-hmm. bit about where, where you got started. I know you did a bunch of stuff for nonprofits. Yeah. So I started off at an ovarian cancer um, survivors group, the Ovarian Cancer National Alliance. Um, it is no more. It's merged with another organization, but they're still out there helping ovarian cancer survivors. And it was amazing. I mean, it was in some ways like the best little microcosm of learning because, you know, I was then on the other side, pitching yeah. media like me and, remembering what I wanted and what I needed. And then they had not really had a communications department. So it's like doing the press releases, you know, um, interviewing the media, like building that, that roadmap, all of that and helping the executive director come up with messaging. I mean, it was just very on the ground training when I hadn't gone to school for PR. I mean, I had a passion for it, but I didn't go to school for it. And I had to learn by doing, which is the, way to do anything. Yeah, no, and I totally agree. And you know, so many of those nonprofits have such limited budgets. And oh, they absolutely. are so limited. And so a lot of times the communications team ends up really doing even more than just communications. So the fact that you're learning on the ground, that's fantastic. And so but you and I met when you were working on the mm-hmm. business side of a startup yes. news outlet here in Washington. Tell me a little bit about yes. that role and what you did there. Yeah, so um, I worked at Axios. So I was the head of media there, like their um, external relations there. And it was, I'll be honest, Lisa, it was kind of like um, coming full circle. So having start out at newspapers and started off in journalism, and I was an avid fan of Axios before I started. And then to kind of be back on that side. And, you know, at that point, that was when Axios was launching their Axios Local. So local news is always just a passion project for me. I love it. I think it's so important and it's so undervalued and everyone understood that when COVID happened and you want to know where your local COVID shot is, that's where you get it from, local news. Yeah. Uh, And it was really just a fantastic place to work. Um, Jim, Roy, Mike were just amazing. And I learned, it was like a masterclass every single day. I learned so much from them and all of those amazing reporters and it was just really exciting. It was a lot of fun to kind of come in every day and like, what are we going to do? I don't know. Is it the HBO show? Is it launching a new product line? Is it launching a book? Um, every day brought in something new and exciting. Well, and it's you I can thank for having Axios take over the month of April two years ago because we yes. sort of cooked up that idea <laughs> and it was so fun. Yeah. But what's so neat to me too, Yolanda, is that when we so we had Axios April as i mentioned and yes. Axios takeover was so fun but the cool thing for me is that i learned so much even during that period of time a couple of different things mm-hmm. when i first started the show i learned that huh? communicators who have to ask their bosses for permission to tell newspapers information have the same level yes. of scrutiny that journalists have 
because they have to go through their corporate communications office to make sure it's okay for me to talk to the Friday reporter or for me to talk to really anybody that is promoting themselves or promoting their, um, their, their -hmm. publication. And that's a new, that was new to me as a communicator. So Mm -hmm. that was the first thing I learned. But the second thing I learned was from that time when I worked with Axios mm-hmm. and I got to know a lot about the smart brevity and, and a lot of the other mm-hmm. sort of now branded um, information and content that they're sharing yes. in their book and everything else they're doing. Mm-hmm. I no longer write a long headline. I no longer right. Yes. There's so many things that I learned <laughs> from what they've shared. So, I mean, and that's true of, of the, the guys that started obvious Axios and then Politico before, like they right. really have transformed media here inside of Washington and how cool for you to be in that space with that group. Of Absolutely. People. So cool. But now I do still sometimes please. feel like I have a little bit of them over my shoulder when I'm writing an especially long email and I'm like, okay, I need to break it down. It needs to be a little bit more smart, brevitized and, um, it, those sort of things, like once it gets a hold of you, it doesn't ever let go and it changes your writing forever, but for the better. I think it is for the better because for that reason, I think people pay attention. You can catch them. Our atten- Absolutely. I mean, these smartphones, we used to blame the remote control. Now it's definitely the smartphone and the social media and our <laughs> attention spans are like yes. so small short. that oh, we, so short. and as communicators, we really have to grab you in the first few minutes or mm-hmm. it just doesn't work. Right. You lost them. Absolutely. So now, so after a couple of years of doing that remarkable mm-hmm. work, now you're doing, I mean, I can't wait to hear about this, this new role that you're in. Elizabeth yeah. Blazer, Pediatric AIDS Foundation. Will you tell me a little bit mm-hmm. about the work? Every different foundation has a different role in, in their work that they do. So mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about that, if you will. Yeah. So, um, the Elizabeth Blazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation, um, we were, um, created and named after Elizabeth Glazer. And she is a, um, she was just an amazing woman who um, was diagnosed with HIV. Um, She unknowingly gave it to both of her children. And this was at the time when there was just a lot of fear and a lot of stigma around um, HIV and AIDS. And, you know, this was before Ryan White, I mean, it was just, there was a lot of unknowns and people just didn't really understand what it meant. And um, she decided that she was going to make sure that no mother had to go through what she did. There were no treatments for kids. There were um, very, there was very little concern about and focus on what to do about the children. Like where are the children in this whole epidemic And um, she was the one who called attention to it. And it's really amazing because when you think about it, and especially as a mother too, just the, the passion and the power to, to do that, to make a stand like that when there was so much stigma, stigma, there was so much unknown and really like, step out of the crowd and call attention to it and say, I have this condition. My children have this condition and I'm going to fight for other mothers and families and children to make sure they don't have to go through what I go through. Wow. Um, It's just, it's just really so amazing. And we've been around now for 35 years. Mm -hmm. Um, We have expanded from when Elizabeth 
uh, was alive, it was a lot more just about awareness mm-hmm. and getting on the agenda. And she has this really famous speech in speaking to the Democratic uh, National Committee and basically just putting it on the agenda, like forcing people to really pay attention. And she was so tireless in that work. And she and her, um, she her two friends, and they put together this foundation to really be focused 100% on the children. Yeah. And through their tireless efforts and their work, we have gone from being just an awareness building and advocacy organization to now we also do treatment. Now we're also getting more information about data, statistics. Um, we are really, uh, we've really just been a very passionate voice for children. And because of that work, you know, we have had a significant drop in HIV for children here in the U.S. It's been like a 95% decline for children in the U.S. Wow. And then a 50% decline globally. But this is because of one woman. And just to, you know, it's, I always get kind of chills really thinking about just the power of voices. And, you know, that's always been a really big thing for me in my career, just giving voice to people who might not, but to step out of the privilege that she had. She was the wife of a famous actor from Starsky and Hutch. She could have just ridden that out and not taken the stand that she huh. did and really devote the rest of the time she had to making a difference for women and children and families she may never know. And her son, Jake, is still very active in our foundation. I was going to ask, yeah. It's been really amazing. And it's just it's just a really great organization where um, I've always said, like, I'm a do-gooder who loves to do, you know, get the job done and do good work. But it really is an organization that puts that front and center. It's really about helping people who you don't know and you might never know, but really making a difference in an epidemic that is curable. I mean, we are fighting for an AIDS-free generation and we'll get there, but we won't get there without the attention and the dedication of folks like you and other listeners of like really paying attention to the issue. It's not over. It's still an issue. And um, organizations like EGPATH are really out there fighting for it. That is... I mean, I, I did not know the whole story behind how the foundation had come together. I certainly didn't know. I, I was going to ask you about her to start a foundation. Mm-hmm. It's not something that it's not an everyday thing that someone can do. You have to have a, some resources and you have to have some notoriety and you have to have Absolutely. some things together. But how fantastic. I was going to ask, are, is any of her family still involved? Because obviously she's mm-hmm. passed on, but it sounds like her son is very involved. What kinds of things, what kinds of uh, events and work do you do to advance the issue? Because I know going into any kind of uh, foundation, there's always a lot, there's a big effort. Like what kinds of projects and products are you producing for the foundation? So we do a little bit of everything. So um, my team in particular, we're also really working on the research because it's also very important to us to always remind people, no matter where they are, um, where the, whether they're policymakers or researchers, where are the children? Um, it's very easy because children have very little agency. Um, more often than not, they're relying on their parents to like get them to appointments. They're relying on their parents or other older people to provide 
feedback to doctors, like we are really about making sure that children are centered in the work of the world, the work of global health, that treatments are, um, that treatments are considered developed with children in mind, Mm -hmm. Um, that policies and a lot of HIV and AIDS policies and programs are really designed about reducing the numbers, which is great, but children always lie behind. You'll always see like, okay, the numbers are going down, but for children, it's a little harder to budge that line because they're smaller. It's easier to take out that population because it's messy. It's not, um, they're growing up. So it's like the, uh, the treatment that you're giving them at five might be different than what they receive at 12. And what we really do is whether it's really pushing for research that centers children, working for policies both here in the U.S., but also on the continent of Africa. We work with a lot of ministries of health in numerous countries to make sure that children are included in their policies and their treatment programs. Um, We're also, whenever there are international conferences and people are sitting around big lofty tables, that they're thinking about the children too, because this is a generation that will make the difference, but they won't make the difference if we don't invest in them and we don't pay attention. I'm going to ask an innocent question because it really, I don't, sure. I don't know the answer. Um, yeah. And it's because, I mean, I grew up in the eighties. I mean, I was born in the early seventies, but I really grew up in the eighties. So during the height of really the epidemic mm-hmm. um, and hearing about it every night on the nightly news and digesting that information and learning more about it. Um, and so I feel as if I, I was really paying attention then, but as you said, a lot of the a lot of the awareness has sort of fallen off now. So many of these children. This, so my question is: Are many of these children born with with AIDS, or is it through contracted through various? It's probably different. I don't even know the question I'm asking. It, it's 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 different. I mean, it can, the contraction can happen in different ways. But one of the really exciting ways is that you know, even people who are HIV positive. That does not mean that they are going to have an HIV positive child. Okay. And I think that's the really thing, the really the thing that's the most exciting now of, you know, I remember too, with like Brian White and some of those stories, I remember seeing that on the news and I remember the the confusion and just the the scariness of it all, because oh, you just didn't know it what was, it meant. And right. It was just, yeah. And I mean rural Georgia at the time too. And just, there was a lot of just not really understanding of what this is. And it is particularly here in the U S it is sort of treated more now as like a chronic disease that can be managed, but in other places like um, the areas that we work in, in Africa, it is still a very large issue. It is impacting a lot of families and communities. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be challenging. I mean, COVID was, was hit a lot of areas. So a lot of those treatment pipelines and that infrastructure that had been built, um, it broke apart when people were isolating and people didn't know and they didn't want to be in like crowded settings and hospitals were also dealing with COVID. And there was just so much going on that now we are still trying to, you know, come back from that too. I mean, in some ways it's, it's kind of an, an odd way of looking at it, but a lot of the infrastructure that the HIV and AIDS communities built um, in res- just for treatment benefited those countries in COVID because they already had that sort of infrastructure oh, wow. created. But now it's getting people to kind of come back to the centers, to come back to the communities, 
we have been working a lot in um, one project I can think of in Tanzania. We're actually taking the treatments to where the people are because you can't really necessarily count on people coming to the city centers anymore. You have to be able to be flexible and meet people where they are. So it is really exciting how um, innovation is being used to really benefit folks and get that connectivity back. But it is a problem that's not over. And I think, in, especially in the US, and you know, I'm not going to give away my age, but mid 70s too, of just like you go, you went from like seeing it all the time. And I remember all the after school specials, and it was oh, yeah. always in TV shows oh, yeah. and everything. To now, you might hear someone mention it, but it's not a central piece anymore. And in some ways, that's really good. We don't want the stigma. We don't want any of that. Sure. But in absence of that, people are like, oh, it's been solved. That's right. And And that's, that's, yeah, and that's not helpful to your cause. Right. It's not helpful to, to, to what you're doing. And how amazing that this has been built in the support of children. I mean, really, because they don't have a voice. Right. I mean, even now I have very uh, older teenagers and when they go to the doctor, that is like even to advocate for themselves, for their health care, it is mm-hmm. still very hard. So I can't imagine, you know, with language barriers, with misunderstanding, with the stigma that still goes along with this, um, the mm-hmm. level of complication it adds for these little people who are just trying to get themselves, you know, on some steady footing and get on with their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's amazing. So amazing. I'm going to make sure yeah. that in the show notes for what we talked about today, that people know how to find you and know how to find the, the yes. foundation and be supportive of it. Cause it's an amazing, amazing cause. Yes, um, it is. If you could draw any parallel between mm-hmm. what you have done and what you're doing today, is there anything that stands out? Um, it seems like learning on the job is probably a big part of being nonprofit in general and sort of like evolving yeah. with the changes. But tell me a little bit about if you could draw a parallel between the two, what would it be? I mean, it's funny, Lisa. One of the things that um, I can appreciate now that I'm older, I think it's really appreciating your journey. Because mm. I think when I started, I was so type A. I was so like, I'm going to be on the news. I'm going to be doing this. I'm going to be a you know international <laughs> correspondent. And I was so certain what my future was going to hold. And it took me a while to be able to just relax a little bit and let curiosity lead of like, you don't have to have your entire career plotted out. And that's what I say to a lot of, you know, uh, younger people, cousins, even that are just like, what am I going to do with my life? I'm like, you know, just think about what you're going to do next. Don't even think about your life because um, like we were discussing, like every, every organization, every brand that I've worked for has brought me here. Yeah. So working at Ovarian Cancer International Alliance, small staff, sharing an office, um, it was just, we we're all in like three rooms. You did everything. You stuffed envelopes. You you read in copies. I mean, some of this is very old school and I am going to be dating myself. Like the facts is like all of that stuff you did. I learned how to use the postal machine. The postal machine was a big thing. If you want to, oh my gosh, you, I remember the postal machine. <laughs> if you want to go back in time, I'm with you. I mean, we, you and I, we're 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 talking yes. about similar similar career trajectories. I get it. At one point, I actually 
wanted to write on my resume that I knew how to use a fax machine. And someone was like, yeah, you don't need to do that. It's, in, it's, it's, it's implied that you would know how to do that. <laughs> I remember all these things of like, it has helped me. So when I am managing a team now and I'm talking about like press releases of just how to do one, I'll never forget um, one of, one of the teams that came in on, I was, I was, I had our first meeting and like, this, these are my ideas and this is what I want to do. And it's also a reminder of like meeting people where they are. And um, one of my team members and I praised him to this day of just being brave enough to say, he's like, how do you do a press release? And it's just like, oh, okay. And then having to adjust myself of like, remember when you were in your twenties and you were doing all of these things for the first time. Yes. And what do you wish somebody would have told you? Right. And because I've done all of that, all of the grunt work, it makes it easier to say, like, I'm not going to ever ask you to do something that I haven't done myself probably a gazillion times. Yeah. I mean, right. nothing I'm going to ask you to do that I haven't right. done. Right. And there's something very um, liberating with that, too, of just like, at the time, I'm like, okay, I'm doing this. And I did internal comms a little bit and I did corporate comms and I work for a nonprofit and then I work for a startup and but everything has led me to this moment and all of those experiences and all of those wonderful mentors and champions and just teammates that I have learned from have helped me get to here and I would really just advise anybody to just let go of the five-year plan yeah just let it go put it I to think the that's the best advice and just Enjoy the ride. Yeah. Lead with curiosity. Do things you're interested in doing and learning from and just enjoy it because one at some point in your career, that little detour that you thought was a detour was exactly where you needed to be. Isn't that and that's I mean, I think that that's fantastic advice because I look back on some of the what I thought were detours when they were actually just yes. for, they were forks in the road. They were the next direction. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. But when you're taking it, it is a little bit of a leap of faith. Like, am I making yes. the right choice? But you're absolutely right. I mean, half the things in my career, if I hadn't have taken that fork, would not have happened as they did, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I love that so much. Well, when you're not staying busy with your everyday job, and I, I just yes. love the work that you're doing. I, I feel like I've, I, there's so much more I want to learn about what you're doing. Uh, yes, absolutely. What keeps you busy outside of the office? Um, I have a seven-year-old little boy, um, Gabriel, who keeps me on my toes, um, has taught me more about dinosaurs than I ever knew possible, and bugs and lizards and all kinds of creepy crawlies, which if anyone is listening and they know me, is so not me. But <laughs> that is also kind of like putting you out of your comfort zone. Yep. Like I have a little boy who's like, let's take a walk and look for bugs, mommy. Okay, I have a little boy who wants to sleep outside on the ground in a tent. I'm more of a glamping mom, but okay. So you just describe I mean, me to a T. But having sons <laughs> does this to us. I mean, it, it takes us to talk about a fork in the road. I mean, all right, here we go. We're gonna figure it out. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's been. I mean, every every part of it is a journey, and I and every part of it is a blessing too. Um. I think that I am much more relaxed in certain circumstances than I ever would be. 
Um, I think I'm more able to roll with the punches. I mean, talk about a five-year plan. I thought I was going to have a little girl like me who loved to read and was quiet. And I have a little boy who is the complete opposite of everything <laughs> that I was as a child. And there's and, and there's parenting defined in one full sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and just also like I love I love learning. I love stories. I love storytelling. I love listening to different podcasts and um, different books. And, you know, I am one who I just love hearing people's stories. And that was also part of journalism of like, I was a features writer as a part of also being a health writer too. And that was something just very fascinating of just hearing people's life stories and how they came to be and what makes them tick. And that, that part of me, I can still talk in the elevator with some of my neighbors and about just random things. And you learn so much. I totally agree. I think that, and that's, I think the one thing about communications and journalism really yes. is the storytelling, right? Because that's what people want to oh. hear. They want to hear the story. They want to know and how it relates back to them, a connection, right? And so many of yes. the best journalists that we see today do figure out how to illustrate a bigger issue with a story about someone that's living through that, whatever it is. Right. And that I think Absolutely. if, if you, if, if journalists and, and communicators can figure out how to do that, it really does help you connect the dots for folks who maybe find it to be something that's abstract. Absolutely. And it also kind of helps bridge the disconnect too, because I think, especially right now, it's so polarized and it's so easy to say you're at this. And so I can't, talk to you or be friends with you or be around you. And I'm at that. So, um, but there's, it's that connection, those sort of like that universality that brings us together, that just makes us people. And I think sometimes we can get too wrapped up in the labels and the, the packaging. And when you really strip it down, it's just about the people and the experiences and, you know, me talking about my son and some of the experiences of being a parent. And, you know, there have been people that I had absolutely nothing else in common with, but we start talking about our kids and especially if they're boy moms, it opens up a whole community of like, your kid does that too. And it's wonderful. And it's beautiful to have that sort of, that, that sort of directness, that sort of community, that sort of um, connection mm -hmm. that you didn't have before. And you wouldn't have had that unless you kind of make yourself vulnerable and you share your story. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. And I think that it also is something that's so necessary right now. I mean, you, you talked about the oh, polarization yes. and you talk about sort of us all sort of living either one direction or one label or mm -hmm. at some point, I really hope that we can transcend this time and move along from it because I feel like Absolutely. nobody's seeing the best of themselves or anyone around them at this point. And hopefully maybe we'll get through that after 24. This will be a tough year, um, but we're going to get there. <laughs> we will. Regardless we will. of the outcome, we'll get there. So as I get to the end of my conversation, Yolanda, yes. I, I love that we've had a chance to, to chat and I, I can't wait to learn no. more about what you're doing there. But tell me, you know how this is how I grow my show, right? I always ask for a recommendation. <laughs> so who is it I should talk to for a future episode? Oh, goodness. Um, there's so many people. I, I, I'm one person who like, I love ideas and I love connecting people. Like there are some um, global health con uh, communicators I think would be fascinating. Um, I think that 
just also, I know we talked a little bit about the local news and I know you've done a lot of reporting on that, but there's so many sort of like nonprofit local news groups that are coming online too. I love that are just them all. Really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, I really want the news industry to get itself together because it also every time I read a, something in another place dies, it makes me sad. Me too. Um, yeah, but also just they're so, um, I really think like in the nonprofit space, there's so many like unsung heroes, the people who are kind of that shop of one and you're doing a little bit of everything and you're really just trying to get the work done and people never really understand the engine that's behind it. Mm -hmm. It's just more of like, they kind of think that the magic elves kind of put it all together, but there's like somebody who's really doing it. So I have a, a lot of names, Lisa. So okay. I almost feel bad like naming one because then they're like, why didn't you name me? Um, <laughs> well, so many I don't people. mean, I don't so mean to put people. you on the spot either. So if you want to share the list after the fact, that's okay too. Yes, but I will share the list. That's okay. Because yes. that I think more than anything, it's sort of been the journey for me. It started as just a journalism show and it's really turned into more of a conversation about communicators and newsmakers and content makers because those yes. are the talk about the unsung heroes, the people behind the scenes who are making them making the magic happen, telling the story about the children in Zimbabwe or, or Tanzania mm-hmm. or wherever it is. And their remarkable story about how they're bringing bringing the clinic to the to the children to get them well, like those kinds of things to me illustrate so much better uh, and make that connection, but also to journalists, our journalism friends. And, and like, you know, as we, we talk about this, it is a really difficult time. More nonprofits are coming online. I'm talking to one later on this month. I talked to Josh Kurtz earlier, uh, in the show series. Uh, he's at Maryland matters. He's doing amazing work Mm -hmm. there. There's so many really cool people in the space that are really keeping the lights on and keeping the business going. So share the list. That's the cost of admission to the show. Yes. (laughs) And Yolanda, it has been my absolute privilege to have you today. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I love having this show. I love you to be part of it. Thanks again. Thanks to PR Daily for being a partner. And thanks to the folks at Big Wig Podcast for letting us be part of their network. See you soon.